but we're going to be continuing our series in Genesis. And I want to invite you to, if you have a screen of some sort or a paper Bible, that you might uh, open up to Genesis chapter 23. That's where we're going to be for the first part of our time in God's Word today. And before we get too far into it, I just want to ask you something. Do you have a... I got to stop that. At first, I thought I was going crazy. You know, do you ever have that where you hear a sound and you're like, am I, am I losing it? Is this it? <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so Genesis 23. Before we get it too far into it, I just want to talk to you about places in your life where you have to, sometimes you have to do stuff without knowing stuff. And here's what I mean by that. So I was in Pennsylvania for a long time, and we went, we went out into the Delaware Water Gap. And it's this place where the... Appalachian Mountains kind of goes through the area. There's a river, the Delaware River, you know, George Washington, right? Goes through the Delaware Water Gap. And so you could hike up there, you could do all kinds of cool stuff. And we would go up there and we'd have fun. So we'd go and do hiking and we found this one spot where there was a creek. And this creek had, had a, it, it kind of fell down this mountainside. And there was this one spot where there was a, a rock face that was maybe, I'm a, I should say like 50 feet, like 60 feet. It's, it wasn't that. Like it was maybe like 30 feet. 30 feet tall. And then there was a pool where the stream came down. So the stream came down, filled up this pool, and then meandered down after that. Well, this pool is like 12 feet deep. So we got a great idea. Because where there's like pools and rocks, you jump off rocks in the pools, right? That's what you do. Because it just, it just makes sense, you know? And so we would have someone swim to the bottom. Like we'd have like, like a 16-year-old guy that loved cold water for some reason. I don't know why. But he'd swim to the bottom, make sure that there were no like trees or, you know, rocks or death in the water, um, and he would check it out for us, and there, it would be all clear. And so you'd have to get up on top of this face, and I saw people stand there for like, I, I mean, 45 minutes, like literally 45 minutes just thinking about the jump, thinking about the jump. And, and I just, I was thinking about that, I was preparing for this message, because this message, this passage is really about a time when... You have to jump. You have to jump. And you don't know what's going to happen. You don't, you don't know if it's going to be okay. And in fact, it looks like it's not going to be okay. But you jump. And there's a measure of trust that you have in God, a measure of faith that we all have to have in order to take our next step with God and with people. That's the kind of message for today, but it's in the, in the context of a real estate deal. A complicated property purchase. So it's going to be lots of fun today. We're going to talk about ancient real estate law and about faith. Because why not, right? Why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes, let's pray, and then we'll dive into God's will together. Go ahead and take a minute. Just think about in your life. Is there anywhere in your life where you need to take a step? And that step is scary? Any place in your life where you need to take a step and where that step is scary. Maybe a place where it doesn't, you're not really sure what it's gonna, what's going to happen if you take that step.
Maybe just take a couple minutes and just ask God whatever words make sense to you. God, give me faith. Give me faith to take a step, to plant a flag, to believe something about what you're trying to do in my life, what you're trying to do in my workplace, what you're trying to do in my school, what you're trying to do in my family, what you're trying to do in my city. Give me the faith to take a step, a bold step. Just take a couple seconds and talk to God. Father, thank you for today. And God, I thank you for texts that surprise us. And I think this is one of them in your word, just one that you use everything, even real estate deals, apparently, to tell us about yourself and tell us about this journey of faith and what it looks like. God, show us what our journey of faith needs to look like. Show us the steps that need to be taken, the bold steps of faith that need to be taken. God, give us the ability, the courage to do things and to say things that need to be done and said, but we don't know how it's going to work out or if it's going to work out. God, give us faith today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Genesis 23. We're also going to be in Jeremiah and in Hebrews. So we're going to do a little dance all over the scripture, but here it is. In Genesis 23, verse 1, we're at the end of Sarah and Abraham's life. That's kind of all I'll give you for the context. We're just kind of at the end of their life. God has promised them the land. He's promised them a home. He's promised it to their descendants. And he's said, your family's going to bless the whole world, is kind of what he said. So that's kind of the context of this passage, and, and let's jump in together. Look at verse 1. Sarah lived to be 127 years old, a nice, ripe, old age. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. So Abraham... Abraham's wife, Sarah, who they have a complicated relationship, and we have dove in deep to their complicated relationship over the years, but it is one of faith and love and a family, and Sarah passes away. And Abraham is sad, he wants to go and he wants to mourn, but the relevant thing here for us is that where is she and where did she die? She dies in Canaan. And if we are paying attention in the text, immediately when we hear that word, alarm bells go off for us, because that's the promised land. That's the land that they don't own and that God promised to their descendants, but it's not theirs. So it's kind of the thing that jumps out for us. Remember that Sarah was barren and God brought life. And not just any life, but the life that will tell the story of God and people. She laughs at God, then laughs with God. Laughs at God because there is no way that barrenness could be turned into something else, right? There's no way that life could come out of lifelessness. That something healthy could come out of something broken. Or is there? She laughs with God at the ridiculous joy of having a baby at 90 years old. So she has both kinds of laughter. We talked about this. But she passes away and Abraham grieves. So look at verse 3. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. Remember, this is, a, this is Canaan. And Canaan isn't just any land. Canaan is the promised land. A little note here, a lot of people didn't think that the Hittites existed, that this was a fiction of the biblical writers. And actually, it proved through the course of archaeological study that actually there was a group of people called the Hittites. And that this actually was a place and a time and a people that were connected with this land. He says, sell me property. And this is a big deal coming from a foreigner and a stranger because Abraham is an immigrant. 
He is wandering in a land that is not his. He's a foreigner. If he purchases land as a burial site, how long does he own that land for? Forever. Forever. Because if Sarah's buried there, she's going to be buried there for always. Right? This isn't just like a one-time lease agreement. This is a purchase of land. What would that mean about his home if he owned land in Canaan? What would that mean about the nation that's supposed to come from him if he begins to own land in Canaan? And now we enter into a complicated ancient negotiation. Look at verse 5. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. I I may want to make a bad joke about like, Choice tombs are us. You know, like, like any one of our tombs, that's fantastic. Check it. It's the greatest tomb in the world. You can have it. Just take it. It's wonderful for you. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. They say he's a mighty prince. Abraham calls himself a wanderer, right? They call him a prince. And this is a tongue-in-cheek ancient negotiation. This is what you do when you're in sales negotiations, right? You say, I'm just, oh, I'm just... I'm just a poor, wandering immigrant. Sir, you are a mighty prince. Have our choices of tombs. Like, you see the back and forth between their negotiations. We won't refuse to use this land for free, Abraham. Look at verse 7. Then Abraham rose and bowed before, down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, if you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Notice, I'm a wanderer, let me buy. No, take for free. Hey, no, I want to buy. I want to buy this land. Here's this land, this person, this price. This is how it goes. This is the back and forth of ancient real estate deals. Like, I'll pay full price. Let me know. I, I want to I buy this particular field. But if he takes it for free... Who owns the land where Sarah is buried? Someone else. What, this, this is kind of lost on us a little bit, maybe in our modern context, but what happens when you bury a person in a place? I don't know if any of you are into genealogy. I know at least one of you is. Um, but if you're into genealogy, you've ever visited grave sites. Has anyone ever visited a grave site before? I mean, of a family member or relative? If you've ever visited an ancient grave site, there's something very weird about it. I'll just say one time I was in, when we lived out in Pennsylvania, I found out that I had some family that when they moved, came over the ocean, they moved to Pennsylvania, like in the middle of nowhere. I mean middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. The sticks, as it were, right? And so I did some research and I found, I found where they were buried. And so I was away for like a day conference. I was like three hours away from the grave, but I was like, forget it. I'm just going to go and I'm going to try to see it. And so I drive and 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 drive, right? Into the middle of nowhere. And I finally get to this place and I see the family name on this stone. And this is from like, one of the people had fought in the Civil War. It was that old. You know, and then there was, like dad was buried there too. And you stand at this place and there's something very grounding about it. Maybe you felt this being around your grave. That when you bury someone in a place, it almost makes that place special for that family. 
So if Abraham is just given the land versus owning it, someone else owns it and it passes away and maybe it gets destroyed and maybe other stuff happens. But if he purchases the land and he buries his wife in it, there is a sinking down grounding thing that happens between him and the land. It's a relationship between him and the land. Now, in verse 10... It says this, Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Remember, notice, this is again one of the weird back and forth of the negotiations. Abraham says, speak to Ephron. Ephron's right there. <laughs> so it's kind of like this weird sort of dance that they're doing. Uh, he, he says this, no, my Lord, listen to me. I give you the field. I, I give you the cave that's, that's in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. So again, the politeness, the, uh, the, the, the hospitality of the Hittites to say, no, 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 no buying, no buying. Here, just take it. Just take it. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, this is like buying a used car. It really is, the, the back and forth here of this. And he said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. I want to buy it. Let me buy it. I need to be grounded in this. And then look at verse 14. And if you didn't believe me before that this is a negotiation, this is where like, surprise, it's a negotiation. Definitely. Watch this. Ephron answered Abraham, listen, listen to me, my Lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, which is a fortune. That's a fortune. That's a lot of money in this time. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between you and me? Very good, very good. Like, you know, like, you just said, it's, it's worth 400, but yeah, no, no worries. You just take it. You just take it. Abraham agreed to Ephraim's terms and weighed out for him the price he had made in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. What seems like just this gracious <laughs> giving of land by the Hittites turns into a complex real estate transaction. And Abraham buys it for a fortune. But it's worth it. Because now he's grounded. Look at verse 17. So Ephron's field in Mapella near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, the trees are important, was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the city. It was deeded to him. Here's a spoiler alert. Abraham's going to die in the next chapter. But this land was deeded to him. His life had been lived under the shadow of a promised land, a promise that involved the land, not just any land, but this land. It began as God would show Abraham the land he would show him. And then it was specific, specifically Canaan. Canaan, as in part of the land Abraham is in right now, getting a piece of that land deeded to him legally in the sight of many witnesses. You know, if you're reading this in your Bible, you're just like, okay, this is so boring. Like, what? Who cares about some real estate deal between Abraham and the Hittites? This is a down payment on the promise for Abraham. This is a sign that the, the, the God who is speaking destiny over him wasn't just some made-up nothingness. I, it, he was real, and the promise was real. And he can look at the land and see it. Look at verse 19. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife, Sarah, in the cave 
of Machpelah near Mamre, which is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. The down payment on the promise. Think about this for a second. Take a step back from the text. A guy who was a foreigner in the land, an immigrant in the land, now owns a piece of it. When he was promised that his descendants would obtain it. This is obviously a foreshadowing in the life of God's people, in the life of Abraham. But this is also not the only time something like this happens. If we had just come across this text and I preached how I just preached to you about this text, if I'm sitting in your seat, I would think something along the lines of, okay, are you stretching for that? Like, is it really that big of a deal? Isn't this just some, you know, real estate deal, you know, written down for posterity's sake? Does it really, is it really that big of a deal? The promised land, the home of God's people is going to be an obsession for the people of the Old Testament. And this is not the only time that something like this happens in the scriptures. Let's turn our attention to Jeremiah 32 and let's look and just experience this together. Hear the similarity in the, just the, the down payment here. This is the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. That's a lot of information, but here's the, here's the basic rundown. Jeremiah is a prophet of Judah. Judah is part of the splintered kingdom of Israel now. Israel has been broken up and there are only two tribes left that are not taken, captured by Babylon. That's why you see that it's the 10th year of Zedekiah, that's the king. Normally it would say the something something year of someone, the king of Israel. But there is no more king of Israel right now. That's gone. The land is being swallowed up by Babylon. The army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, God's city. And Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard on house arrest of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. It doesn't get much worse than what we see here in Jeremiah 32. The promise, the land, all of it is at risk of being completely Destroyed. Now Zedekiah in verse 3, king of Judah had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says. I am about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. And he will speak to him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. Why are you giving bad news, he says. Why is everything so helpless? Let's arrest you. Let's suppress the truth that you're preaching, that bad things are coming. Look at verse 6. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Again, a little background here. Anathoth is Jeremiah's hometown. That's where he's from. And in this time and place, after the Israelites got the land, it would be divided up by families. And if your family section, if something happened and you couldn't afford your piece of the pie, a relative would come and buy it. So it would stay in the family. That's what happened. And his uncle is going to come to him and ask him to buy it, this piece of property. Another really important detail is that Anathoth has already been captured and destroyed by Babylon. It's over. 
Look at verse 8. Just then, then, just as the Lord has said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. Anathoth, destroyed in the hands of the Babylonians. Can you imagine your uncle coming to you and saying, man, have I got a deal for you? We own this piece of land in Afghanistan. Prime Afghanistan territory. It's great. It's fantastic. The best land you've ever seen. And it's your, like, do you want it? Like, what do you say? You laugh at it. You know, like, you, you laugh at it. Because it doesn't make any sense to buy a piece of land in a war zone, right? doesn't make any sense. While you're under siege, captured in Jerusalem. Look at what Jeremiah does. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field in Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed. Signed, sealed, delivered. Had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy. Don't you just love this real estate law? And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and, as, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. Why are these verses in the Bible? These verses are in the Bible to let you know that Jeremiah bought this just solidly. He bought it, and he has the proof of it, and it's sealed, and it's signed, and it's got witnesses. I bought the field in the middle of a war zone. Why? Why? Why would God have Jeremiah buy a field in his hometown in a war zone? Why would God have Abraham buy a cave in the middle of nowhere Canaan? Why? Look at Jeremiah in verse 13. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and the unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. This is a down payment on the promise. The promise that God has not forgotten his people. He has not forgotten to provide for them a home and a future and a plan and meaning and purpose. That once again, houses and fields and this land will be useful once again. And you know how much I want you to believe that? I want you to believe that so much that I want you to buy a field in the middle of a war zone. That's how much I want you to believe it. The captivity of the Babylonians will go on for 70 years. Buying a piece of land in Jeremiah's time was a protest move against the Babylonian captivity. The captivity that he said was coming. We may have lost the plot, but God hasn't. There is still hope and light and something good is coming. God has not forgotten, has not forgotten our pursuit of home. This is compelling to me. Like this is a beautiful part of God's word to me. But... What does the land mean anyway? Like, what is it? Does it really matter? Like, what is? We're reading this in Sioux City, Iowa, in 2017. Okay, so I look at this text, and it's about a piece of land, a plot of land that's still at war. Like, still wars are raging about this land, and it's far away. This, what is it really about? What is the land about? Is it about the land? Is it a source of nationalistic pride for the Israelites? 
Because if that's all that it is, it is still important, but it's hard for me to connect with. But as with anything in life, and as with anything in the scriptures, there is a thing behind the thing. So hang with me as we land this thing. What does the grave of Sarah have to do with anything? The grave of the woman securing the down payment of the prom- promise. Here's the thing, Hope Springs, listen. This isn't about a grave. It isn't about a legal transaction. It isn't even just about the foreshadowing. This is about home. This is about a down payment on a home for God's people. The home that you've been seeking since you took your first breath on this planet. A desperate for a place of belonging. That is what Abraham and Sarah's life was about. A search for home. How do we know this? How is this not just something I'm thinking of? Look at Hebrews 11 where we end our time in God's word today. All these people, all these people in the Old Testament, all these people, the Abraham and the Sarah, the Elijah, the Moses, all of them, they were still living by faith when they died. What does this mean? They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And maybe that they were foreigners, immigrants, and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country that they left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Abraham could have gone back to his own country that he came from. They could have gone back. They could have made a home anywhere. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Wow. This is about home. This is about our place becoming God's place. This is about our city becoming God's city. It's not about some dirt in a specific location. The question for you today is where do you need to put a down payment on something? I'm saying with your life, with your words, with your actions, with your money, with your time, with your whatever. Where do you need to put a down payment on the good things that God is calling out of your life? Is there some way that God might be challenging you to buy a field, to plant a flag in a workplace, in a classroom, in a community, in a relationship? Is there some way that you might believe something that does not exist yet, but live your life and act like something big is coming? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's pray. Is there any place in your life where you need to put a down payment? Where you need to believe something that doesn't exist yet? Is there someone that needs your love that doesn't deserve it? That would be an example. Is there a situation that seems desperately impossible? What does it look like for you to buy a field in the middle of a war zone? 
Because this is the way of the Lord. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of love. What does it look like for you to buy a field in the Lord's home? Father, thank you that your word is alive and that sometimes you, the driest passages that we just, I personally just have no idea. Is this going to be important? How is it going to be important? They just come to life. God, you just bring your word to life and it does stuff. Shows us things about you. God, would you show all of us what it means for us to buy a field in the middle of a war zone? Whatever that war zone looks like, it might be a relationship, again, a, a, a community, a, a neighborhood, a family member, an addiction, a sin that we're wrestling with. God, we, what does it look like for us to stake your claim in our life that we're your kids and that love and grace and peace are the things that have the last word? Give us courage, Father. Courage to believe things that we can't see. To take a step into the unknown. To trust you. God, give us that trust. Give us the love that's going to help us to reach out and serve others. and Be the people that you're calling us to be. God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.